You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Innet Ponhuis. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Hi, Mark. What have you got for us today? Hi, Leo. Today, I want to talk about TAFE. It stands for Technical and Further Education, and the organization can trace its origins back to the 1830s. Each state and territory in Australia has its own TAFE institutions. And according to its most recent annual report, TAFE New South Wales had 436,000 students enrolled across 130 locations across New South Wales. So what does it do? TAFE New South Wales is the New South Wales government's public provider of vocational education and training, also known as VAT. It provides nationally recognized training packages. And the main difference with universities is that TAFEs are considered to be more practical, which means that their courses prepares people to work as, say, a technician or to take up employment in a skilled craft or trade. So think plumbers, electricians. Whereas university courses are generally perceived to be less practical in this aspect. Also, most university courses would take at least three years where TAFE can be somewhere between one and three years. At least that's what it used to be because TAFE New South Wales is now also a higher education provider since 2011 and actually has a combined domestic and international enrollment of over 2,000 students taking 16 different types of degrees and in particular bachelor in information technology and early childhood education. And finally a very quick note on how much it costs well there's a lot of variation in there but let's say if I wanted to become a barber then I can study right here in Wollongong for a certificate three in barbering for which the full fees will cost me about $10,000 and it would take me 36 weeks to complete. And these are the key aspects of TAFE. And if you're studying at TAFE, what is the education experience like? Is it equivalent to a university? Is it primarily you know, lectures and labs? Well, a lot of it will be practical. So you would probably spend more time in a practical environment. Like there's only so much you can learn Let's say if you're an electrician, by looking at the books, if you're going to hook up people's electricity in their homes, you're going to have to test it. So it's way more practical. It's skills-based, hands-on, more than... There is obviously theoretical components, and there'll be, if you become an electrician and you want to work for yourself, there will have to be some study involved running your business and things like that. But generally, the main difference would be the ratio between the time you spend in a classroom versus the time you spend in a, let's call it a laboratory environment, is vastly different. And they're they're quite um, tied in with the apprenticeship system as well, right? So these students will spend time in the real world in actual businesses as part of their degree? Yeah, that's why it's always perceived as being more practical. If you go to the university, that means you're effectively not part of the society outside the university. You spend all your time in a university environment as part of your degree. Whereas if you do a TAFE education, you can have an apprenticeship and as part, so you would work in a real job for a certain period of your time while you also study at TAFE. 
And from a professional perspective, for the staff members of TAFE institutions, I mean, we've spoken a few times about the kind of dual role of university researchers and academics. They have their teaching role, but they also have a research role. Do TAFE lecturers have anything equivalent to that? Not that I'm aware of. They they might need to keep their practical skills up, but as far as I'm aware, there's no facilities for doing research. And finally, is there much collaboration between neighbouring universities and TAFEs to bring in the practical students alongside, I guess, the engineers or the more blue-collar workers? That's an excellent question, Leo, to which I have absolutely zero answer to. I have no idea on this one. We'll look into that. So what, what have you got for us today? All right, so today I want to talk about the good lever and bad lever clauses. So these are two related terms you can find in a shareholders agreement, and they both relate to defining when and how people can leave a startup business. And by these people, I mean key people, which are the founders, directors, or early investors. As the name suggests, a good lever is someone who exits without any wrongdoing, such as a director who completes their contracted tenure, or perhaps a founder who falls ill and can't fulfill their duties through no fault of their own. Examples of a bad lever might be a founder who leaves to establish a competing business, or a director who is not attending board meetings that they're scheduled to. The purpose of these clauses in a shareholders agreement is to essentially discourage key members of a business from leaving early, and being a bad lever can have serious financial consequences tied to it. Most commonly, a bad lever renounces their rights to any shares or options they would have earned through vesting. And this can be a significant stake in the company and therefore a significant dollar value. Because of its financial impact, it's sometimes the case that departing executives will contest being labelled a bad lever and this can go up to taking the issue to court to get an independent ruling. But fortunately, such cases are rare And in most cases, the bad lever label is never applied because it serves its function of discouraging people from leaving at all. And at the end of the day, that's the purpose. It's to keep the business whole and keep the key people on board. So you just said that at the end there. So are there examples of bad levers that you know of? There definitely are. I I don't have any examples to hand, but a lot of bad levers won't necessarily come to the public attention. Someone might leave, they might be defined as a bad lever, they might lose their vesting rights, but unless they have that uh, fight in court, that kind of public stoush, you would never know as a, as a member of the public that they've been defined one way or the other. It purely affects how their rights are handled for future vesting and future kind of share issues, and that's not public information. I guess it's not something you put on your LinkedIn profile next to entrepreneur and then have bad lever. That's no. not something... You would do so. You mentioned they renounce their rights to shareholdings. How how does that work in practice? Do they is that written? Is that who who needs to accept that? Yeah, I mean, renounce might be the wrong term here because that implies it's voluntary from the perspective of the lever. But in fact, it's the board who strips them of their their rights by declaring them a bad lever. They are no longer eligible for the share rights that would have vested to them. And we've talked about vesting before. That, that's a way of setting up the distribution of shares or options such that they are delivered in the future rather than immediately. So these people have this kind of bank of shares that are planned to be granted to them in future. 
and, and they will vest in 12 months or 18 months or two years by simply stripping them of that right to have those vested shares. You have effectively reduced their ownership of the company and effectively reduced their financial remuneration. But you haven't had to do anything as the company other than just neglect to issue the shares in future. So that's the main uh, stick that goes with being a bad lever. So just to clarify, if they have actual shares, they're not being taken often. They will always... No, shares that have already vested and already kind of are owned by that individual are very hard to take away. So part of the purpose of vesting is to give this uh, stick to the company to be able to withhold the vesting of shares. So the, the two tie into one another and having shares that are coming to you but not yet delivered uh, is part of what makes the whole system work and, and keeps uh, people incentivized to continue on with the company. And if this goes to court, is there a special court or is it just any normal general? Well, I mean, it's contract law. So there would be contract lawyers and I guess it's a civil proceeding rather than a criminal one. But that is about where my understanding of the legal process ends. And I think we'd have to get a lawyer on to, to really nut out the details of how these cases might proceed and what the precedents are. But in, in any case, even you know, notwithstanding the details of the law, that, that could be a costly exercise for company and the lever if it goes to such case. Is that one of the reasons why this rarely ends up in court, just simply because the costs involved? Yeah, and look, if, if a case is ambiguous enough, there is a chance the uh, leaving party could successfully contest the bad lever ruling. A lot of boards will just err on the side of caution and treat them as a good lever, give them their share rights and avoid the hassle of having to have this fight. So it's generally only you know clear-cut cases of a bad lever that these punishments are applied. Okay, well, that's probably all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. All right, see you next time.